0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing. If you want the full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify. For free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify. Spotify.
1: This
2: episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now... They have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand
2: up and walk now. Hello and welcome to the Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, he's a Barbie girl in an Oppenheimer world. It's Andy Greenwald. But you're the opposite. I am an Oppenheimer boy. Yeah. In a Barbie world, yeah.
3: See, I don't, I don't accept labels.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, neither do I. You know, uh-huh. this is not a Fugazi T-shirt. You know what I mean? Like, this is. I'm. I'm. I go. I'm much like Joe Manchin. No labels.
3: You are so much like Joe Manchin. I'm. I'm so excited. Even your third-party spoiler candidacy cannot ruin this day for me.
2: Today on the Watch Podcast,
3: mm-hmm. Barbie. Yep. Oppenheimer. Yeah.
2: Lioness.
3: Yeah. This is <laughs> potentially the most full of content <laughs> podcast we've ever done, and I want the listeners to know. That Chris Ryan has his legs up. Well, I love it. It's no, one don't o'clock. Take, don't we usually record
2: down. earlier. I'm 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 feeling pretty groovy. Guys, uh, it's it's
3: 90 degrees plus. Chris is, is wearing a uh, heavy cords, corduroy <laughs> pants, and a long sleeve shirt.
2: You're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, but I have I have an image to uphold. I understand. That's why my shirt says drug church. <laughs> it
3: does um, like mocking me.
2: Where we could start in so many I, different places. Let's just talk about like where we're at as a popular culture.
3: Chris. There is nothing ambiguous about the success of this weekend. I feel like for us as a country, for us as a culture, for this town of Hollywood, despite its present labor unrest, to which I am a party, I am just very happy about this. I saw two great movies, very excited about them. I'm very excited about the specific things that make them great, the different things that make them great, and also the fact that both made a fuck ton of money. And I think that the biggest reason for my happiness is that... You
2: have Mattel stock.
3: <laughs> <is> that, <laughs> no, but I am trying to get an EP credit on Polly Pocket. Um, neither of these movies are sequels. Uh huh. Neither of these movies are comic book movies. And we'll get into the branded IP nature of, of Barbie for sure. But unimpeachably, unambiguously... These are worthwhile, interesting, thoughtful movies made by filmmakers who were given free reign to do things that were unconventional and surprising and and idiosyncratic, and they were rewarded with boatloads of cash. Yeah. And I think it's really exciting, and I really don't think we can overstate the potential trickle-down effect from this should writers and actors ever work again.
2: I was on The Big Picture to talk about Oppenheimer, and we talked a little bit about the... uh the alchemy that happens when mm-hmm. there is a critical mm-hmm. groundswell for a movie or two films in this case that's also met with a wildfire of word of mouth. Yep. And like the way it kind of reminds me of like when the fugitive came out or when Jurassic Park came out critics were coming out and saying like, holy shit, they did it. And then everybody who saw it like in the opening weekend was Mm -hmm. like, I got to go see that movie three more times in the theater. And that's how I kind of feel about both of these movies. I can't wait to see both of them again in the theater. And yeah, I've been trying to articulate what it is that they did that they share, you know, what what these two filmmakers did that they share. And so much of it is like, these movies feel super big. They feel huge. And I don't mean like you have to see them on a wide screen, although I would definitely recommend... A certain kind of viewing experience for Oppenheimer, but they feel in a way they like they dwarf a lot of the movies that we've seen over the last couple of years in terms of like their scope and their imagination and the stories that they're telling.
3: I agree. I would say from the last rave that I gave about a movie a week or two ago about Mission Impossible, I would say that Mission Impossible was successful because it did many, many, many predictable things very artfully and exceptionally. There were no moments in that movie that surprised me. There were just many that thrilled and entertained me. And that's no small thing. That's fantastic. But I, will, I would almost begin by saying about Barbie and Oppenheimer that both movies have just weird turkeys of scenes in the middle of them, mm-hmm. or or surprises, or what? Like, And that feeling is so increasingly unfamiliar because th- that feeling is when you come up against someone's personal decision. Yeah. Someone felt strongly about this scene, yeah, someone felt very motivated for this joke, and it stayed in and i I think that matters i mean i i I genuinely feel like my experience seeing both of these movies was really noteworthy for me because i I came in with some preconceptions. I tried not to read much about either of them, and and, and Oppenheimer is, is slightly different. You had a preconception a, about Barbie. Let's well, let's be clear. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I had no idea what it was. For Oppenheimer, I mean, it's a Nolan film, yes. And if you speak Nolan, you're going to feel relatively comfortable there, even though I think that it is in some ways his most out there movie, and I love that. Yeah, I love that about it. But um, yeah, maybe this comment is more directed at Barbie, and I I want to own something here. Like I sat in this chair. Call,
2: I think you were like, this is a career killer.
3: That trailer was awful. Mm -hmm. I thought it was awful. And one of the reasons it was awful, I think, I mean, it it was a hedge. It was a, here are the broadest, most comedic beats about this. But the reason why they did that is because, A, early trailers always do that. But, B, I find it, I, I don't even know how you would communicate what this movie is. It is so deeply strange. It is so personal to Greta Gerwig as a filmmaker it is so stylistically different from everything we've been spoon-fed for the last few years that it definitely took me, even when watching it, 10, 15 minutes to be like, oh, we're doing this? And then you relax into it. And that's an experience that I often only have watching Criterion movies, frankly. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying Barbie does... it, First of all, Barbie will 100% be on the Criterion collection in 10 years. But what I mean is, it's not like that much of a challenging art film, but I just mean that it was someone's... They're fingerprints of one woman all over this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool.
2: I think it's really easy to be cynical about fandom right now. This is mm-hmm. one one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Because obviously, over the last five, six years especially, I think we've witnessed the rise of a very toxic strain of fandom, both in the sort of not-so-latent misogyny that's involved in it. Mm-hmm. We've also witnessed a kind of overemphasis on a hyper-engaged, hyper-vocal strata of fan that can dictate seemingly the creative decisions of of filmmaking choices or storytelling choices and also like a weird kind of like we're seriously only making this so that it can trigger a few it's like almost like a mouse eating cheese reaction so we're gonna put john krasinski is gonna be in this movie as reed richards just because, because we the, know you like it because right?
3: the internet wanted it yeah
2: the internet wanted it and uh, something really interesting happened, or I noticed something at Barbie on Thursday, which is that, like, obviously, I'm sure, like, your screening that you saw, I, I went to go see it in Glendale, and it was full of people wearing pink. Mm-hmm. And it was full of people, like, therefore, like, at, in big groups, having, like, the time of their life watching this movie. Mm-hmm. And for a second, I was like, that's strange. I consider myself pretty observant. I did not know there, there were that many barbie the toy fans in the like like out and about in los angeles like I'm, maybe i just like you know i just didn't notice before but like it that, didn't that, seem that that's way. very can of you but mm-hmm. what i realized is that a lot of the people who are doing that are already or were already fans of this movie now that i don't know that they had seen it mm-hmm. before but obviously you spoke to the the trailer. The buildup and the hype and like the excitement around the film minted fans before people even walked into the theater in a way that melted my heart. Like I, I yeah. seriously was like, this is pretty cool. I can't believe like something out of out of nowhere like this that doesn't have the infrastructure and the scaffolding of Iron Man will eventually like recruit Hulk. Mm-hmm. And I've been waiting for that for 30 years. They were like fans of like, I've seen enough of this movie well, in the trailer to know that this is a movie for me.
3: Well, let's go through it on a couple levels. Let's start with Barbie. Clearly, yeah. that's 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 more financially successful. And but I think we'll more talk about relevant
2: to modern yeah. energy sure. policy. Yeah.
3: Energy policy?
2: <laughs> and disarmament. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> we actually, yeah, just like the early tracking numbers, and they were like, show it to Einstein. Like, is Barbie going to destroy the world? Let's go through a bunch of that. You and I grew up at a time when And we
2: should say we're probably gonna spoil parts of Barbie going forward. Yes. And parts of Arbena
3: He successfully tested and then they detonated a nuclear device. I feel confident spoiling that one. We grew up in a time when summer blockbusters were meaningful and significant and felt almost bigger than they were. You mentioned a couple of them. Not just, but you were mentioning some some critically acclaimed ones. There was always a feeling and it's definitely tied to the era and our ages and like schools out, grab the issue of Entertainment Weekly or whatever and be like, now I see what my it's it's like a, this is my map for the yeah. next three months, yeah. Um, and you'd get sucked up in the hype, and there would be and that was fun. It was fun to ride the roller yeah, the coaster. Independence even if Day would were,
2: almost be as big mm-hmm. as July Fourth.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you you and your friends would go to movies, and you'd have whatever. It was a, it was a fun event, and that has kind of been felt like it's frittered away. And part of that obviously is coming out of the pandemic and things. So the marketing does matter the feeling that this was an important event does matter. And you and I are often clamoring for that kind of like shared experience. I think it's great. I think it's fun. And the joy people were getting from seeing this movie once or twice, even in an opening weekend, bringing their mothers, bringing their daughters, bringing their kids, whatever. Like that is awesome. I also though feel like there is such, it's not just, I feel like not just a fan of this movie. Like I I kind of can't believe what she pulled off. I, I also don't think I finished my mia culpa. Like I was super wrong about the trailer. I deeply apologize to Greta Gerwig whose career is so much more than my dismissive comment ever should have suggested. Because Jesus Christ, has anyone ever written their own ticket like this before? I I, I don't know. But I'm sort of in awe of how she walked into every meeting, I assume, and said, this is what this is going to be. Because a Barbie movie, and I think maybe she saw this as an opportunity, not a challenge, is a meaningless construct. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean anything. They're a toy company. They make toys. What is the story? What is the reason for, for doing it? that she found a reason to make this movie and that she made it so profoundly feminist in a way that was hilarious and I think, frankly, important. And also, despite, you know, online cranks, very inclusive and kind. Mm -hmm. I think she did so many things at once. She, first of all, this is a big screen comedy in a moment when everyone's like, well, what do comedies mean anymore? This was a fucking comedy.
2: And it didn't really feel like a comedy that was written by like a Minions writer room. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but like where it's just like 12 comedians being like, here's a bit, here's a bit, here's a bit, here's a bit. It was actually like the comedy came out of like, I am writing these characters. This didn't
3: come from a Mannion's writer's room. Like I, I we are not the correct vessels to argue the feminist bona fides of this sure. movie, but they are profound and they are resonant throughout the entire film. And like one thing that I could not get over and that once I realized it was happening, it just made me happier and happier to be watching the movie was- Nobody cares about origin stories. Nobody cares about the magical whatever the fuck you need to get from one dimension to another. Let's move on and tell the story you want to tell. The conceit of the movie, which sounds real dumb when you say it out loud, is that Barbies are dolls in the world, but there's also a different reality where the Barbies that are being played within the world live in perpetual sunshine Yeah, there's a connection
2: between the dolls in the real world and the dolls that are real people in, of. in Barbie land.
3: And that there is a porous border that you can cross if you drive a car, sing Indigo Girls, ride on a bike, rollerblade, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, into reality. Yeah. Mattel and the FBI know about this. It's happened before. Let's move on. Right. That, in one fell swoop, it just, like, just swept away the fucking Infinity Stone saga from my brain. Now, I like those movies. <laughs> There are a lot of podcasts of me liking those movies. But boy, did it feel good not to have to care about that shit anymore. Sure. About all the, the legwork and the brick brickwork. Now I'm talking about the Lego movie to get there, you know. It was refreshing. It was just a different point of view that I really, really relished.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess, you know, I was talking a little bit about the cynicism melting away. I didn't really have any going into it, but yeah. just whatever I had going into it, I think was largely rooted in the corporate rock still sucks kind of world of like, and I say this as somebody who's worked for corporations for my entire adult Uh life. But uh, the idea that somebody who I regard so highly as an artist and Greta Gerwig, not selling out. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's just, but like making something that would be an active commercial for a product. Did you have that going in and how did you feel afterwards?
3: Yes, I definitely had that going in. I mean, I think we everyone remembers my very optimistic rant uh, in the wake of that New Yorker article that sprang from the pre-Barbie hype yes. about how Mattel is not a toy company anymore. It's an IP factory and they're open for business. I feel odd because this is a Greta Gerwig movie. This is not um, SpawnCon. And what she did with the opportunity wasn't necessarily, in my eyes, to service a brand. It wasn't Trojan horsing, which is a phrase we over... over, It's a little bit telling on ourselves how much we use that as a potentially good thing. You know, if you could just sneak in a couple good ideas under the rubric of, you know, the Kang continuum, then, like, then, (laughs) you know, we've won. Because ultimately, we can't make a difference in the world, but we could just, like, make a couple good... get a couple jabs in. This is 100% a Greta Gerwig movie. And what she did with it was she completely rebranded the brand. What Mattel and Warner Brothers do with this going forward, who knows? What toys come out of this, who knows? That wasn't her concern. But to take the fundamental idea of Barbie, which has been, as the movie talks about, a battleground for our own cultural and societal concerns and fears and hopes and everything since it was created, and say, this is at the root of this doll and this doll can be and do anything, Uh was staggering. You know, it was really staggering to me. I I would also say, one thing that I don't think I understood about her as a filmmaker, and I think this is also kind of a gendered way to have considered it, was that we are coming off of 20 plus years, right, of of every next generation of great filmmakers just using their bully pulpit or using their opportunities to relitigate their childhoods. Whether it's Quentin Tarantino with Kung Fu movies and and all the 70s cinema that influenced him, or more specifically, what I'm talking about is J.J. Abrams being like, I'm just gonna the same way Ken's job is beach. J.J. Abrams' job is Spielberg.
2: Uh-huh.
3: I'm just going to make homages to Spielberg. And then the sort of descendants of that, of like Colin Trevorrow being like, I just want to play with these toys. Yeah, I right. just want to play with these toys. Right. Greta Gerwig is doing that too. Yeah. But she's doing it with her childhood, whether it's Ladybird, which is literally her childhood, Little Women, which is her favorite book. Here's a doll she played with, and next she's going to do the books that she loved, more books that she loved in uh-huh. Narnia. It's pretty interesting. It doesn't make it necessarily, you know, as artistically moving to me as a Yeah,
2: I don't know what it says about our moment right now that all of our great visual storytellers don't want to engage with the moment head on. You know, I mean I think that well, Barbie Barbie
3: engages with the moment.
2: I think it definitely does. I don't think that Barbie is without flaws, and I don't think that um I'm fully past the 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 sort of corporate tie-in of it. Mm-hmm. I thought a lot about how we've talked for years, of, you know, we, you and I have like the running dialogue about like the Trojan horse and yeah. it's like, you're going to have to play the game a little bit but when you play the game, you, it's up to you what you're also going to deliver underneath and, you know, I don't think that a Greta Gerwig movie about the problematic uh, long-term effects of the patriarchy and the powers of feminism would have been able to get made straight up. You know, like, Greta Gerwig can't make that movie just like without a selling point, without it being yeah, put inside but, of something, you yes. Know?
3: But it's also an incredible box to. You know, I choose that that phrase intentionally to put in such a frankly funny and savage satire of American mandum or just being a guy, American kendom, American kendom. It's funny, yeah. It's really funny, and it's real. Also, it's you know what else is funny is just like fucking right wing snowflakes being like how dare you ma'am it's like one movie making fun of the behavior generally of some men yeah is that's how many movies have there been made by men over the years at least like what 60 70 movies made by men I don't know I should ask Sean but like one is gonna upset you that much come on you, you, should, you should
2: participate in the movies made by men draft on the big picture.
3: <laughs> so, so, just the movie drafts? <laughs> right. Um, right. She would, you're right. I mean, I think that there, are, but I think maybe the inverse is the way to frame it. Like, there, there are emotional beats and story ideas and just the, the struggle of being a person uh, concepts yes. in this movie that are in all of her movies. Yeah. Um, and she didn't steer away from them, and she ran right towards them, and There's she's found them. Also, you know? like,
2: a evolutionary step that she takes here as, like, a visual filmmaker, as somebody who obviously had a much bigger budget. Little Women's Incredible, Lady Bird's Incredible. I'm not trying to diminish those movies in my praise of Barbie, but... But many
3: great filmmakers totality have, have, have...
2: of the vision of mm-hmm. Barbie and, like, everything from the color scheme to the costuming to the editing to obviously working with Mark Ronson to have this huge original music component Some of which I was like, that's not like my favorite kind of music, but it worked for the movie, you know, Um, it was just like a 360 dunk of a a filmmaking performance from her.
3: Yeah. Also, she we were talking about this a little bit with we were talking about Christopher McQuarrie. Like it is it is always fun to watch movies made by people who love movies when they're allowed to demonstrate their love Mm -hmm. for movies, like her affection for big screen musicals, Mm -hmm. whether they're singing in the rain or or all the way to all that jazz. I mean, you see elements of that. And in so doing, she gave these performers the opportunity to be performers in a way that a lot of modern movies don't. Um, Marvel movies ask you to not eat carbs for a while and be snarky to be in them, right? Like, but traditionally, movie stars could do more than that. They could be genuinely winning or emotional. They could sing and dance. They could be in on the joke. They could be above, rise above the joke. And... Gosling in this is incredible. Yeah. He's absolutely incredible every scene that he's in. And he sings and he dances like he used to on the Mickey Mouse Club. And he owns he owns it with a degree that is just so fun to see. And who else is giving him that opportunity? And Margot Robbie, who's an actor who I think is...
2: Nicholas Wending Ruffin,
3: by the way, is the answer to your question. Good call. Because <laughs> the humor in Drive, I remember, is being really the most memorable part of it.
2: It has some musical elements.
3: It has a lot of... It has good music. Yeah. But Margot Robbie, this is also, I, I she's unquestionably talented and charismatic and I've liked her in Wolf of Wall Street and I like her performance as Harley Quinn even though I don't like those movies. But Did you see Babylon? No, I haven't seen Babylon.
2: But And you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes. obviously. And you didn't see Asteroid City,
3: right? Not yet, no. Okay. But there's a, there's a canniness to this where she's just like, she knows what she's good at and she as an executive producer of this movie who clearly fought for Greta at every step of the way, like, showcasing the best of her abilities because she's fantastic in this too. Um, She's
2: doing what the best movie stars do. They work with the best filmmakers. They make sure that they're like, I'm working with somebody who's going to like, yeah, they're going to feature me as a performer and they're going to feature me as a star, but like my Q rating is going to go up because I'm going to be part of the best movies.
3: That is, that's true, but but I'll yes and that to say that there, there are examples of really good actors who work with the best filmmakers to be challenged which is important mm-hmm. part of it, that filmmaker will force me out of my comfort zone or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like, like
2: Tom Cruise working with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, or
3: Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York or something. But like, this is a, such a different type of symbiotic relationship where you get the sense, or at least the proof is in the final product, that Greta and Margot understand what makes each other great, mm-hmm. and they allowed each the, each other to be great in a way that transcends some of the other things that they've done. I was, I'm, I'm super into it. I, I did a 180... In Within the first 10 minutes. Yeah. I, dude, it's really funny. The, so, fun, the jokes were good. The, Will, Will Ferrell's back.
2: The great thing about the majority of the jokes in that movie, too, are uh, it realizes that, like, the humor is really in the details. So, mm-hmm. like, for instance, like, there's an entire sequence where Ken goes to Century City where he realizes amazing. how amazing it is to be a man.
3: And the patriarchy's benefits, and the Century City is the best place he's ever Century been. City is the best place he's
2: ever been. And guys are giving each other fist bumps and working out and driving Hummers and like
3: he's watching a video of <laughs> Bill Clinton.
2: I mean, he's taking books about trucks the entire <laughs> out of the library. The
3: entire <laughs> sequence at the end where they unbrainwash the Barbies from the the patriarchal rule of the kingdom is incredible, and not just because of the Snyderverse jokes, not just because of the let me explain The Godfather to you. Not just the Stephen Malkin's yeah. joke, which, thank you. <laughs> just thank you, everyone. <laughs> it's
2: important to be seen in a movie like Barbie.
3: But like the Matchbox 20 song and like the de- the little details, like Will Ferrell in his board meeting with pink drumsticks you yeah. have to coordinate it. But like, there's such a good spirit throughout the whole thing. You know, it it, it did something. The, the narration, the insane 2001 opening, the... Helen Mirren stopping it to be like Margot Robbie. To the filmmakers, Margot Robbie is not a good avatar for this argument that plain-looking people can be worthwhile. Yeah. All those things in the wrong hands, if they're deployed, they could be really off-putting. But it it leaned into, I think to bring it back to your original point, what the movie has become culturally, which is kind of celebratory. And that in and of itself is a very different thing. So what this movie looks and feels like when it's on TV, whatever that means, whether it's, you know, streaming or just you, you catch it when you're Flipping channels like Larry Sanders' show.
2: When you're if you're watching it on Kingdom one day,
3: <laughs> <laughs> that would be a respite. Speaking of which, there's a this is not a spoiler Oi, for Hijack. What are you fucking watching? There's, Hi, Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> there's a moment we're going to talk about Hijack on Thursday. There's a moment late in the series when the screens flicker back to life for a minute. Yeah, uh, just a note. Like if I was in hour five of a hijacking, <laughs> I would not be that psyched. <laughs> to have <laughs> my, my rerun of two and a half men come back on you know what I mean like yeah. I would be more measured I yeah. think in my response um, no, no, I but love I, this
2: Brooklyn Nine-Nine I, thank I God
3: <laughs> of the three episodes available for me to watch on this long flight I, I think I just mean like when you rob these moment movies of the context who knows then you start to look at what the filmmaking is and the movie is and what it's saying and I look you know that'll be a spirited debate perhaps for the big picture podcast at some point but for what this was it met the moment mm-hmm. you know in in a pretty thrilling way and you know look as a as a father of daughters and as the son of a female aunt
2: yes the nephew
3: nephew of isn't that what Will Ferrell says yeah uh, this movie really it, I think it does kind of matter like I'm, I'm very excited for my older daughter to see it
2: and this may be an unfair question especially mm. the vibes given the vibes did you see any flaws in it did you think it was a flawless movie
3: See, no, but that's sort of, I think my hedge was saying like, we'll see when we take it away from the the shock of the new and the celebratory moment. I think that I, I'm sure there are things, I started by saying one of my favorite aspects of the movie is that it yada yada, you know, basic linear reality and narrative. I, mm-hmm. I, I love that about the movie. I, I, I found that to be a breath of fresh air, just the way it visually told the story and just breezed to the things that it wanted to show us and that it was interested in. Again, in in a second viewing, those might be more challenging. But yeah. again, I it was sort of hard to I, I I watched it like I was watching a magic trick, and nothing sure. nothing really bumped me in this because I was delighted and surprised, and that those are feelings that I haven't felt uh, to that degree in a theater in a while. Okay, you want to you want to run through some flaws? No, not
2: really. Is I mean, it, there are, were parts you, of it that didn't hit for me. Like I don't I don't really think that the Rio Perlman part like connected with me. I think. Maybe having the inventor of Barbie also be God is like a... Well, she was a ghost. Sure. Yeah. Do but you... she had quite quite a few powers.
3: Is um, the Noah Baumbach erasure really getting to you? Yeah. Like the real, the real the man behind the curtain of Barbie? Yeah. <laughs> is that, that's not the take we're going to do? Uh, I, I get that, but...
2: And I thought that the America Ferrero part was essentially like a, engineered for her to do what she does at the end and give that speech, mm-hmm. but is not like a real character but like
3: I, I guess the, the the thing that also got me is
2: but that's like those are we, we could go through Oppenheimer and make the same like sort of like that's not a real character or like this didn't work for me too it's not it's not well you. Rhea
3: Perlman is sort of plays the role that Niels Bohr plays <laughs> in Oppenheimer I believe you know when shows up and is like is it big enough I, I guess I'll just say that this is this might be something too where I once was like you <laughs> I have no functional knowledge or of or interest in Barbie that was. Now, the G.I. Joe movie, you know, that was my... Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, like, obviously... That was our text.
2: Well-versed in Cobras. In <laughs> the
3: Transformers verse, I thought was very accurate. Yeah. But absolutely none until I have daughters who, you know, neither of whom, like, they will not wear dresses. My older daughter only wears black, but they still like to play with Barbie and make fun of Ken. Like, that is so inherent to their understanding of the world that, yeah. like, playing with these dolls... I don't think
2: I knew that. And I don't playing, think like, I knew that that Ken was, like, the punching bag of the Barbie-verse.
3: Yes. Oh, I, didn't I know. And I was explaining. I thought
2: he just had an ascot and he just like chilled out.
3: No, uh, no. Uh, everyone hates it. Okay. And like, I, I meant I was explaining to, to my daughters. Who were dubious of this movie, and and they were like, um, "Oh, but Ken's in it." And I was like, "Oh, Ken's kind. Con- that's kind of the joke." And they were riveted. And there was a long pause. And my younger daughter said, "We ripped Ken's head off." <laughs> so that was leaning into the thing. A- and I would say also to the America Ferrera thing, the Barbies that. The girls are playing with with their moms you know like that That like the, it, there is that connection yeah so that was kind of moving for me to see uh, from a distance well i'll from, show
2: myself out i guess from, from just, i'm from, the asshole from dude. my mojo dojo <laughs> yeah. you
3: know? look now we can do the thing so basically us now pivoting to talk about oppenheimer is kind of like what happens in the third act of barbie what do you mean now it's a kendom again
2: oh yeah <laughs> that's right This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven. And your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now. How about going to visit a Seven Eleven valid through one 7 five? Seven Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. Do
2: you feel like these two movies in your mind are like? Were you able to separate the two films? Yeah, or were you thinking about them in comparison to one another?
3: No, I mean, I I thought I genuinely and people know that i am not often without cynicism or being jaded about things but like i thought it was so fucking cool that they're both out and making and doing really well and again i'm not looking at i believe it's called x now which uh just a cool cool website the thing that i like to do when i buy something for billions of dollars is just destroy it so utterly it looks like that part of new mexico where the trinity test happens i think that's just smart business guy um but I, I'm not paying attention to that discourse my, my like 500,000 foot view of this seems to be that people are psyched about both the people involved in both are psyched about both that's and, the unique
2: thing is I don't remember the last time I mean I've, oftentimes during an award season mm-hmm. two movies will get pit against one another yes I want to talk uh, about that sometimes you'll have like what's the box office king this weekend or whatever is it Sound of Freedom or Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning but
3: <laughs> well if your dollars could speak <laughs> I think we'd all I have
2: not seen Sound of Freedom. I just want to make sure that's clear.
3: But your ears are pricked for the sound. You're interested. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Does Mark Ronson uh, have anything to do with the Sound (laughs) of Freedom? It's rare that two films come out on a Friday, whatever, and have that same kind of like passionate audience, passionate critical response. I really
3: believe this, that it's like it is related to people's Although Anthony Lane
2: was a little bit like, eh, about Barbie.
3: I mean, he's who I want to hear on this topic. You know, Hold on, everybody shut down. Tony? Tony's on the line. <laughs> um, I really do think it has to do with the fact that these are personal statements. These are unique properties. You know, people, they, they went for it with these movies. A, a couple weeks ago, when I was despairing over Indiana Jones, and I was saying, I, I just believe that there is an appetite for more original types of filmed entertainment. I wasn't saying... Uh, I'm shocked that the English didn't go on number one on Prime's rankings, you know, or, or that Irma Vep wasn't HBO's most lauded series of last year. Like, I have no illusions about some of the more, uh, let's say, artistic stuff that I like. I don't think that's mass market. I don't think that would be more successful if only it had been on a different platform or gotten different marketing. What I was saying was, I think movies like this feel more intentional and more interesting and more compelling and more rewarding than The Flash. hmm uh-huh. That's that. That's simply what I was saying. I think that's what I meant. I don't know if that's actually what I said. And I choose to look at I this as a victory. I think that these two
2: movies are about things that really matter and that are really like, yes. present in our lives. And the ideas that are in Oppenheimer and the ideas that are in Barbie are very relevant to being a person in 2023, even if they're sent to fantasy land or set in the 1940s mm-hmm. and 50s. And I think when you go and see a lot of superhero movies – they make gestures towards like, this is about how family yeah. is important, or this is about how like you have to heal trauma by doing this. But they're not. They're about the fucking multiverse and they're about like the infinity stones. And they're all the MacGuffins that these movies claim to sort of just be using as window dressing are the window. Like that's yes, that is the thing that these movies have become about now. And they're not really about, oh, this is this is really telling me something. They're spectacles and it's it's fine, well, you know.
3: Also. I completely agree with everything you're saying. Also, these are big, big swings with big movie stars released in a big, noisy way as events. Mm-hmm. People love that shit. It, we, it, it, it's not to blame the system. Like, the history of Hollywood is always exactly Think about how many
2: expensive movies we've come out of now and been like, that looked like shit. Most of them. Yeah. <laughs> they it, didn't it, finish it. Like. Uh,
3: no one doesn't use <laughs> CG. Like, he doesn't do it. So it feels different. You know what I mean? And and the Barbie thing was it was very, you know, it's production design. It was costume. It was music. There were weird little animated squiggles on the screen. Who cares? It was personalized. Yeah. It had it had texture and a point of view. Yeah, I, I, I just feel like, it, I, I, what I was going to say was, I, you go through the history of Hollywood, and it is always business people trying to put guardrails on creative ambition for their own bottom lines, which I'm not against. That makes sense. That's their job. And if something works, you do the thing that works. You just keep doing the thing that works. I'd like, to, I, I could proclaim that this is a sea change. I don't actually have any insider knowledge. I would just hope that there will be maybe a, hopefully an overreaction to the success of this. Yeah. The the secret to last summer's box office success wasn't Tom Cruise in a movie. It was that movie and everything that went into it that made it special and the moment, right? Like, the, the, I'm not saying there isn't a formula, but I don't think it's the formula everyone thought it was.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, I hope that if there's anything that comes out of these two films, it's that Hollywood or whoever makes an effort to try and find the next Jordan Peele, the next Mm -hmm. Greta Gerwig, the next Christopher Nolan out there who want to tell big quasi-original stories in this manner. That emphasize and mm-hmm. centralize the big screen experience,
3: and don't try to make him do Jurassic Park Nine. Yeah, like no. To be fair, Nolan made his bones making those Batman movies, but that was a different era, and those were different types of movies. Um, okay, so Oppenheimer, which it's been a week. I wish you know, I said this at the time when when the three of us we saw it with with our buddy Sean mm-hmm. we when we emerged blinking and forever changed into the I late sure did. evening yeah. sun. Of Universal City Walk. Stumbling
2: into Margaritaville. Stumbled
3: into Margaritaville. Not a metaphor. I wish we could have podcasted right then. Yeah. Um, Because it was was that exciting.
2: I mean, the beer was that cold. It was so cold and so big. And uh, seeing Dave Matthews perform with Jimmy Buffett in a video from the early 90s was really special. I will treasure that experience. And not just because of the company. I will treasure getting to see that movie on IMAX 70 in Universal City for the rest of my life. And I will remember the Trinity sequence and several other parts of that film. But even the quote unquote quieter moments mm-hmm. or the quote unquote throwaway moments, like there are overhead shots of the New Mexico desert that are really just in there because we're transitioning their action to a different location. And it took my breath away. Like it is, it is honestly like a breathtaking experience to see Oppenheimer on on a big screen. And I found myself so, I've been thinking about it pretty much nonstop since we saw it. Like the ideas, the history, the the sort of tide of history that sweeps this guy up, all the things that are happening in the film. I know that there has been some debate about the third hour. I'm sure we are going to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, I tried to go see it a second time this weekend and I could not find a ticket in Los Angeles. That's cool. Yeah. But if you haven't seen Oppenheimer, you should stop listening or skip ahead till... We discussed the new Taylor <laughs> show
3: all um, the great masters, um because we're going to spoil I, a bit I, so I, let me begin by saying, after everything that happened last year at award season and the movie, we just talked about what what happened last what year a, a relief season? it was to watch a movie that could have been called men talking finally <laughs> no uh i I loved this experience also. I said to you at the time, like, I had never seen a movie in IMAX. I, in fact, didn't understand because my only IMAX experiences had been going to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia as a kid when yeah. that, that like, state, that theater opened. And the only IMAX movies I thought were movies were, like, half-dome experiences of, like, welcome to Philadelphia, um, which I, I loved, even yeah. though there wasn't that You're much like, to show. You. Like, oh, that's the Mutter Museum? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Can we get closer into that enlarged tumor? Um, and then, like, stuff about the world of the Mayans. So I didn't understand just the scope of it and the nature of it. And I have made many jokes about seeing Christopher Nolan movies on the backs of seats on Delta planes. Sure. I'd like to apologize to him as well. A
2: lot of going be a culpas for you
3: today. I'm nothing if not transparent. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah, um, that's true. I, this was, tr- I mean, it was an incredible experience. I can't imagine what the experience would be like if you saw it. Not necessarily, you don't have to see it in IMAX, but if you did see it with a, a poor sound system, not to be that guy. But the the reason I begin with that is because I don't know if it made me reflect on two things. One, I don't know if there's ever been a major filmmaker whom I really really like that I have felt absolutely less in common with than Christopher Nolan. Huh. Which is to say, I don't need. I don't mean that I'm friends with other filmmakers, but I feel like almost every other filmmaker that I really really respect. Do you think and there should have been with... more
2: Stephen Malkmus jokes on Oppenheimer?
3: <laughs> well, that would have helped. No, but I mean, I, you know. I just feel like there's always something. I'm like, oh, that's a shared reference point. Or I sort of emotionally kind of understand that. And I've never felt that way yeah. with his movies because they are so relentlessly technical and so heady. And in some ways, you know, show-offy is a pejorative way of saying it. he's just visually demonstrative in a way that I don't always vibe with. The thing about this movie, and I do think this is an exceptional example of it compared to some of his other films, is the way that we saw it allowed me to understand that the visual storytelling—it's like, oh,
2: that's what you guys were talking about.
3: Yes, but specifically the visual storytelling and the sound design—that's his emotional language. Yeah, that's where yeah. he's—that's where the feeling is for him, and that brought the whole thing to life for me in a different way. Um, and frankly, I mean, it's you guys—you know this—and like I was saying this to Sean too—that just broadly, I prefer. I think I prefer it when his his storytelling is in the service of more, not reality, but like Dunkirk. I I am that guy. I think Dunkirk is probably his best movie up to this point. And so him pouring everything that he's learned making these other types of movies and everything that motivates him into this story was jaw-dropping and exhilarating and inspiring. Yeah. And for two hours, I was like, is this one of the best movies I've ever seen? (laughs) And then my pullback is not you've been I'm sure you've had experiences like this too that when you come that close to the flame with something not the filmmaker because this is unquestionably the movie he wanted to make but when you have that experience watching something when you're like oh my god this is my favorite thing I think and then you get a little white knuckly being like hold it hold it mm-hmm. and then they then the filmmaker steers in a different direction does not discredit the work which I think is maybe more challenging than I even I, I think I may come around on the third act the third hour but part of my response was that very subjective disappointment of like oh it's going there okay
2: yeah i was i i think that you and i have had ever since christmas you know we've had this sort of running debate about are you evaluating art on mm-hmm. what it's showing you or what it didn't show you mm-hmm. like the choice that they made and you're like okay this is the choice you made you've decided to make this now more or less a courtroom drama with robert downey jr ostensibly the co-lead of the of mm-hmm. the movie after he has been more of a narrator and a kind of story engine for the first two thirds, and I, I've given a lot of thought as to what the third hour of Oppenheimer could have been, or what the two and a half hour version of Oppenheimer would be if, after the Trinity test, it was sort of a coda about like what mm-hmm. happened after that. And ultimately, like this is the story he wanted to tell. He wanted to tell a much bigger story about yes. the emergence of like a a, a sort of bureaucratic military-industrial complex. Deep state kind of rising out of this Second World War, where America becomes a superpower,
3: and also the difference between theory and practice. Yeah, because the ambiguity that defined Oppenheimer's life and work does not exist in the um, yeah in a in a, in a, a global war economy.
2: And there are several great films that the first time I've watched them. Peaked somewhere in the middle. Apocalypse Now, Lawrence of Arabia. In some ways, like honestly, like the first time I saw Goodfellas, I was like, "How do you top the like?" Layla ends the movie in some ways. Yes, you know, like when you watch um, Heat, the bank robbery like ends the the movie, and then there's an hour of them sort of driving around in circles, being like, "I gotta fucking get this guy." I didn't
3: know you'd seen that movie.
2: But like, that's like you you wind up then on repeat viewings loving the part of the movie that didn't match the energy of the first half as much as you love the first half and i suspect lots of people will eventually come around on the on the other part of oppenheimer
3: i think that that is almost certainly true i think that's a really good point to make and a really good observation the movie is so huge quite literally when you see it at the size of the screen we saw it that to just digest it in one go is kind of impossible um I think that there was a one of the things that I was also responding to was and it was interesting talking to Sean about it because I think Sean has read or is reading American Prometheus, Mm -hmm. the biography that really was the source for all the details. And and it was what inspired Nolan to make the movie. Um, There was a feeling that I got of dedication and devotion to a pre to pre-existing material that began to feel like someone was showing me their work, as opposed to just vibing on what they were responding to, mm-hmm. because there are so many details and so many uh, so much adherence to what I believe is either the historical record or at least the record as per- as portrayed in that book, that that started to overwhelm me at the end. Um, you know that it sort of got bogged. It fell back down to earth, which marks you know that mirrors Oppenheimer's own journey. Sure. But 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 I, I guess I just found that also the didacticism of that last part of it's just like he's he's now unfairly being maligned and the the the, the way that it's portrayed with especially once the heel turn is revealed by straws um it felt it felt more binary than a movie that was yeah it's to interesting you
2: say other. that i did not feel that way i think i left that movie being like that's one of the more complicated and Multifaceted main characters of a major film that I've seen in a while. Of Oppenheimer I mean, like yeah, or I mean, like Oppenheimer names names. You know, and mm-hmm. possibly at times that he didn't necessarily need to. Like mm-hmm. Oppenheimer is responsible for mass murder. You know, like I mm-hmm. didn't walk out of that film being like, I'm glad that guy got his rep restored. That was cool. You know, like
3: yes, and the movie does not, to its credit. I think, doesn't argue that.
2: Yeah, and I think that the ethical and moral questions that the movie asks about science and scientists' responsibility for their creations, and that's where all the Einstein stuff comes in, which may be too cute, but is no, it's also, ma- it's like, amazing. fucking, like, an incredible it, notion. And it says a lot about the current horrors of the world that nuclear holocaust is not at the top of my, <laughs> my power rankings. But I certainly walked out of that thinking about it
3: again. There's also such such beautiful attention paid to the moment that birthed him and birthed this horror into yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, All the
2: historical... There,
3: there's an incredible... The, incre- the beginning is, is, is really incredible. It's a sensory, uh, almost overload in the best possible way. And, but the implication of it is that the thing that quieted young Oppenheimer's massive brain from going supernova was seeing things that made sense to him in the world, like Picasso. Yeah. Like listening to Rites of Spring. Like the moment... Right, like that, reading The Wasteland. Yes, the moments in the middle of the 20th century where it felt like there was a some punctuation being put at the end of history and that it was all going to break. Yeah. And so seeing that, that idea that in a way he was an artist was beautifully communicated and really powerful. And then, you know, he isn't an artist because he is responsible for the destruction yeah. of two cities and countless other deaths and and everything that kind of spiraled out afterwards, including, you know, I think to your point, a lot of the way we talk about these things, the politics that we still have and that we're still marred by. I, I heard a—I know you love when I introduce new podcasts into my <laughs> regime, but I was listening to the New Yorker Radio well, Hour. Well, it on vacation. And it's been rough. <laughs> it's a really good point. Kai Bird, who's one of the co-authors of American Prometheus— and got a, I think he gets a script credit or a story by credit on this, on the movie. I think
2: it's just adapted from
3: the book. Yeah, I think he, it's his name. Is it? his, yeah. I think he gets something. But regardless, obviously it was adapted from his book. And to hear him tell it, he feels like since 1954, since the access hearings, that still has a ripple effect today in the sense that we don't really have public scientists being public intellectuals, giving their voice. Um, everything. Well, it doesn't,
2: is, when they do, it doesn't quite work out. Then for they,
3: them. they mention the name uh, Fauci. Yeah. You know, it, but right, but like there's a direct line you can draw to all that. I want to get into some of the specifics of the movie too, because the performances in the cast. Yeah. It's.
2: Did, did you like Downey? I know you didn't like the third hour, but did you like I Downey? I love
3: Downey. Yeah. Seeing Downey act again is like one of. So, you know, I was like Greta Gerwig saved comedy. Like, this movie gave us Downey back. Yeah. And he clearly wants to be back, but he is one of our great screen actors. Yeah, the
2: fact that he's doing this in Sympathizer, I'm like, you're, you're fucking back, homie. You're, you did it. He's so... And it, Downey's Dream Cars, which...
3: <laughs> which is also uh, <laughs> yeah. fine. But but you know, when, you know, speaking of our, our, our favorite on Hiatus podcast, but when, when Bill is talking about why Damian Lillard isn't going to sit out or pout or be petulant like Philadelphia 76 or James Harden might... Mm-hmm. It's because he, the thing he always says is this guy just fucking loves basketball.
2: <laughs> it's because he knows he's going to Boston. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> but he's he always says, like, oh, this guy loves basketball. He just doesn't have it. The thing about Downey is he loves acting. Mm-hmm. And to see him be in this movie, 100% understand where he is on the call sheet, 100% understand that he's playing a man who is close to his actual age or older. Um, and within those parameters, still devour every scene he's in with gusto and like in live and everything so he's cool. been
2: he's been telling a story on the promo circuit which obviously is over now but uh he was telling a story on the promo circuit about one day being in the back seat of like a you know era specific car a historically accurate car and uh the director of photography and nolan setting up a shot and you know they're shooting on an black and white IMAX film that was made specially by Kodak for Nolan for this movie. Mm-hmm. And they had to go do something else so they had Downey sitting in the back seat getting ready to be on camera holding the mag of film <laughs> that they they had and he was like I basically went back in time to being in a Chaplin movie or being in a you know like an early fi- like this is how we did it back then and his clear adoration for that process and for that moment made me so uh I felt so warmly towards him for that. It was really cool because I do think that in the same way when you're just joking about the NBA, but it's like the stars of the NBA have a response that they're custodians of the game, mm-hmm. like the biggest actors that we have are custodians of our film experience.
3: I love that. And I would also say, I mean I I have taken shots at him in the past about his like his is very, you know, catholic opinionated way of being a filmmaker, but hearing Killian Murphy I mean, when he was on Marin talking about being in a Nolan movie what makes it different oh it tanks what's that?
2: tanks <laughs> do,
3: you want to, do you want to do it? No. they do talk about you too um, <laughs> Killian Murphy's like to Joshua Tree Man it's a great record <laughs> it's, it's a d- d- deeply spiritual record yeah, Marin's like it's kind of spiritual isn't it? And Killian Murphy's like you think? <laughs> like, that's, that's the whole fucking thing anyway um, he <laughs> says something that I had no idea about maybe you, you know this more than I do but like when Nolan makes movies he doesn't have Video Village which is like the little yeah, tent and there's no phones, with the yeah. screens that usually the director sits behind with headphones on watching the shot on the screen and then gets up and like says, cut, and comes in. So no video village. Also, he says in all the movies he's made with him, he's only had to go in for ADR once, which is the additional dialogue recording because you did either didn't get it on the day or you've changed your mind about what characters need to say yeah. because he's taken care of the sound exactly how he wants it. I, I'd and, say
2: that they could have used a couple more ADR <laughs> sessions in some of his films.
3: <laughs> but, but also... <laughs> Well, the Tom Hardy ones for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like this would have been better served if like the Trinity test happens and you hear Robert Downey's Robert Downey's voice go, My God, that's a big bomb. <laughs> right? Or like, just in case we didn't understand. But um so interesting too, in a way that I, I I don't think Nolan often gets credit for it because he's always he's always been good at casting faces, right? Like when he has um Eric Roberts in a role. Like he likes certain types and yeah. He likes touching that kind of. He's also just film really good at zoo. sort of
2: like he has like a Tar- Tarantino eye for. I'm going to bring that guy back.
3: Yes, and so one thing that I feel like you and Sean were talking about when we came out of the movie that I loved mm-hmm. is such an well, but yes, but such an interesting decision to cast a number of former not child stars but golden boys and film them the way they look now. Now, Josh Hartnett still plenty golden and is having a moment. Just an incredible performance by you with this Hollywood. Uh, stock market, but he used to be one thing and now he's this. And similarly, like Dane DeHaan, mm-hmm. right, had a golden moment, or Josh Peck was a, a Nickelodeon star, Alden Ehrenreich, like these people who were were maybe going to be a big thing and have now become a more interesting thing. Yeah, it was relevant to the movie that he was making. I think in a way that I haven't fully parsed, but that was such a fascinating way to fill out the enormous cast of most of the men in Hollywood. Yeah, the ones who weren't Kens.
2: Anyway. Um. In the same way that we are probably not the best two people to be discussing the glories of Barbie, do you want to talk about the problematic okay. female characters of of Oppenheimer?
3: I was going to say like a couple I would run through a couple criticisms. I would say that Emily Blunt, one of our great great actresses, did her best with mm-hmm. a I think a, a deeply thankless part. Now, again, could be very accurate to the historical record and as is often the case the movie did not sim- simply didn't really have the real estate to be like let's really get in between the sheets of this marriage, could have done without the dropping the flask in the hearing scene, just to really underline that she's an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a bummer. I thought Florence Pugh was really great in a role that needed to inspire as opposed to really exist. My, my issue, and I, I mean this only, I mean this semi-seriously, I, I think the movie hinted at an interest. No, not hinted. The movie had an interest in Oppenheimer's Judaism. I think yeah, it was interesting. I to hear about this. I think it was interested in that. I think that idea of who he was, how he felt, do, moving do through he the world. Do you
2: welcome Killian Murphy into the tribe?
3: Fucking if only. It's one of those things that is too beautiful to believe. Thus, I cannot believe it. Uh-huh. Chris, you could cut locks with those cheekbones. <laughs> cut it the way it's supposed to be cut, like at Russ and Daughters. Where you can read the New York Times through each slice. Uh huh. There has ne- he is as Semitic as an advent calendar, and that. I bumped on that. Yeah. It's an incredible performance. I hope he, he will be nominated for an Oscar. I frankly I hope he wins. It is a phenomenal performance of precision and control. But it did rob me of w- that one piece of it, you know, which I think is an undercurrent of how he how he was treated in the world, how he felt in the world, the world he was negotiating, how he was racing to make this bomb because he didn't want the Germans to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And there was a, obviously an animus towards Hitler. And then that war was over and then it got dropped in Japan. All of that was interesting to me. And another great child performer who I recently saw in the lost classic *Adam's Family Values*, David Crumholtz. Yeah. Um, you, you, you
2: def- Robbie, right? Is that yeah?
3: Definitely filled out the Semitic score for me in a big way. <laughs>
2: but their conversation on the train is awesome. It is.
3: Know? It is awesome. It, this is. I'm this, from
2: the other side of the park.
3: That was. That know? was good. Yeah. It's a minor thing, but similarly, Downey Jr. playing uh, a, a guy who came from you know a, what was the. Uh,
2: a lowly shoe salesman. A lowly
3: shoe salesman. Yeah. Like, you know. And he's
2: like, just a shoe salesman. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm
3: not being like, only Jews can play these parts, but I did think that, that was an interesting aspect of the story that was muted by having these phenomenal world class yeah. goy actors play these parts. Yeah. That, 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 it was interesting to me.
2: I appreciated, um, gosh, I mean, I think that there was pretty much like uniformly, like, it was, it was beautifully and well cast. Like, from Damon carrying most of like the pop.
1: Damon's hits so part
2: of the movie to uh Damon's so good. I thought Brando was good. And you know, Brando is no sport oh, like he's great. you know and and he he can be hit or miss sometimes like in Nolan movies I think Brando's fucking awesome, you know.
3: Yeah, he understands how to keep him in line and be like a great actor. Um Damon, I think there's almost not enough being said about him in this part because I believe I mean it, I don't know if it was named that. The the, the previous Manhattan Project movie that I always we've talked about before is Fat Man and Little Boy. I I know that like you know uh, Dwight Schultz from the A Team played Oppenheimer in that Mm -hmm. movie. John Cusack is in it. Paul Newman is in it. In I don't know if he's called Leslie Groves, but it's clearly that part. Yeah. And Damon is not Paul Newman, but it was really awesome to see someone who had who was a young hot guy in movies be like I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to be an old movie star heavy in this. Um, No pun intended, and just. Just be phenomenal in it. He knew, there's a sports analogy to be made here and I won't make it, but in every scene he was in, he knew exactly how hard to throw for what the scene needed. I
2: think Matt Damon is also now in the coolest part of his career where he's like, I'm just going to be in the movies that I really want to see. And if that means showing up in a Steven Soderbergh movie as a cameo for five minutes or... Mm -hmm doing air because they don't make movies like this anymore or being the third or fourth person on the call sheet in Oppenheimer. Like I just want to be a part of these things. And that's legitimately awesome.
3: Do you think, um, do you think this is his best movie is Nolan's best movie? No,
2: I don't, but I also feel too close to it. And I think mm-hmm. that when I walked out of Dunkirk, which is my favorite Nolan movie, I think with Inter- with, uh, inception, I walk out of every one of his films with the same sort of awe you know, and that kind of, I'm bowled over by, I feel like I went into a black hole, I saw the Trinity test, skyscrapers turned upside down, I watched the evacuation of Dunkirk. Like, you feel pretty much Mm -hmm. first person in those those experiences. And then usually, like, multiple viewings reveal the intricacies of the structure or some subtleties in the writing that maybe felt a little ham-handed the first time around. I definitely felt that way about Inception. I've become kind of obsessed with the Marion Cotillard part in, obsession, mm-hmm. in Inception, which is often pointed to as, like, the sort of clear exhibit A and the, like, no one only can think about women in terms mm-hmm. of them being dead wives who are obstacles, you know? But, yeah, I think it's top three, top four. I kind of sometimes think of the Batman movies kind of separate from the rest of the filmography That's in fair. some ways, but obviously, like, Dark Knight's a really great example of, like, the first time you see Dark Knight, you're, like, my face is gone a la Two-Face um, and then afterwards you might be like wait what was the Joker's plan? You know the like, thing on the boat. <laughs> yeah.
3: I, I agree with that I, but I think it's worth saying that I think this is his most human movie not just because it's about humans but just on the face of it like the writing the writing yeah, I'm slight. trying to
2: think of what's the word like does it, this, is this his movie that matters the most?
3: Well, but, but before we get into that like this movie was funny this movie had great dialogue I I was really impressed with that. Like, I don't think that anyone, historically ever, people say Christopher Nolan is one of our great filmmakers, one of our great directors. They do not say that
2: about his screenwriting, yeah.
3: No, but I thought that this was really well-written and whether some of the dialogue was lifted from the book or not, like, it really, it really had pace and verve and it served the story. I really enjoyed it. I also just want to flag, we were talking about things in these movies that made them feel handmade. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the, the, the Florence Pugh sex scene in the, um in the 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 hearing room
2: the sort of fantasy moment yeah is preposterous mm-hmm.
3: and maybe the worst on-screen serious sex scene since the one in munich mm-hmm. um but i'm fucking glad it's there because he wanted that there that made sense to the movie he wanted to make and like those are the little things that were missing i think in the blockbusters of today. yes that
2: did not happen in in dark knight
3: the the sex scene on the table <laughs> yes correct yes <laughs> correct but but also just like the, it, okay He'll, he'll, you know, he, it's not like he's coming on this podcast, but like if someone asked him about it, he would have an answer. Yeah, because there was a reason why he put those things. Yeah, there. It's, I, I mean, I like, like that.
2: there's the old fincherism of like people are basically deviants, mm-hmm. you know, and like they're per- perverts, and it's nice to kind of just get a little peek into the mind, you know, like.
3: I, I think it's just again, I I don't want to keep in, in the spirit of like we've just emerged blinking from these movies. We can't really you know write the final well, that, chapter that actually in segues here.
2: nicely it's, into lioness in it, this way.
3: Well, just to say, yeah, but just to say, like, I, I don't know what the fallout, if you'll allow a tasteless pun to be, mm-hmm. from this, but it just feels very significant that, I mean, I I, could, I would actually believe, if you told me a few weeks ago that Barbie was going to make over $150 million, I could believe that, that Oppenheimer would, at the same weekend, make $80 million, especially having now seen it, knowing that it's three hours of talking. Um, that's stunning. Yeah. It's really stunning. It's a testament to his celebrity as a director, but also, it must mean something. People went to this movie. They didn't stop going on Friday once they heard that it was a little long, you know? You couldn't get a ticket. So, when you come out
2: of... I know you saw Barbie yesterday. You saw Oppenheimer early last week. So, yep. my my question doesn't really work for you. I saw Barbie on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, like, a little bit of an adjustment going, like, back to the small screen. Just kind of being like, oh, okay, like, I'll just, like, I'm the... Like, Get back into, like, righteous gemstones and, and everything else. And I watched this Netflix documentary on Friday night, I think, um, called The Deepest Breath. Mm. It's about two uh, freedivers who were, like, kind of, like, in love. And eh, I don't want to spoil it. You're not going to watch it. I don't really think freediving is something that we should be doing as a people.
3: I strongly agree. I and don't. I, I, I just. It's not take. really
2: a spectator sport. It's very dangerous. And it only really serves... The freediver, you mm-hmm. know, like it's not like we're like we've done it until it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, But I definitely had to. Speaking of diving, decompress from mm. these movie experiences. So when I finally, when you were finally like, all right, after my long week of cinema, yeah, and tours, yes, and thinking about big ideas, and now <laughs> CR wants me to watch Lioness. Yeah, what did you think?
3: It was hard to get. That one thought out of my head which was just like because Taylor Sheridan is like roughly our, he's a little older than us maybe yeah but he probably
2: we're all up, part of the greatest generation that's right
3: <laughs> but we probably all shared the experience we're like watching football as teenagers and like a lot of the commercials were like for the Marines yeah it like young Taylor just sort of cranking it to those commercials and being like <laughs> one day I will make my own recruiting commercial <laughs> yeah and I will have fucking Nicole Kidman be in it yeah It was hard to shake that image. Um, I think my take on this was, this is an exceptionally, I watched the first one. Mm -hmm. And then I watched, because I love you, I started watching the second one. The Beating, it's called. And I, that's, and I was watching it up until a point, can you guess the point I turned off the second episode?
2: I think it was before The Beating took place. I think it was during the Dave Annabelle uh, surgery stuff.
3: This is my guy. Yeah. It's so nice to be known. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting, I don't know who got beaten, I can guess, but <laughs> I was, you know, I was girding myself yes. for some, um, what's the word, uh, war crimes.
2: Well, by the way, we're we're spoiling this show.
3: For, are for we though? I think everybody yeah. knows. The moment in the second episode where we are not even in on the battlefield and Dr. Dave Annabelle is just like, you're going to remove this young girl's face to get to the tumor because that's her choice. And then I was like, okay, that's rough, but time to get back to the Middle East. And then he walks into a room where there's a fucking Hallmark perfect six-year-old being like, I can't wait to eat ice cream for the rest of my life, mommy. Why are there three doctors in the room turned it off? That's when I turned it off.
2: Will you ever turn it back on?
3: Uh, uh unclear. No, the f- I think my takeaway from the first hour, it is exceptionally well made. It fucking rocks. It's the exceptionally first- well and made. He is-
2: so, so good at pilots and at first yeah. episodes,
3: and John the Kingstown pilot yeah. is
2: incredible. The Yellowstone pilot is practically legendary in that like mm-hmm. it sets up like this whole world that has a huge twist. it's so it like eighteen eighty three pilot incredible and i I honestly thought that this pilot was riveting
3: it is it is absolutely riveting it is it is an example of look if future generations, if you know shout out Oppenheimer, if we have future generations, and people will talk about like how and the ways TV changed and what it felt like compared to TV we grew up with. Like, yes, you could put on an episode of, you could make a highlight reel and you could put The Sopranos and The White Lotus yeah. on, but you should put this too because this is insane that this is a television yes. show for a streaming network. Um, it is on such a high level of filmmaking and ambition and volume and violence. And it's also got violence. multiple movie stars in it. Multiple movie stars in it. Like, so we saw
2: is ridiculous in this show she's great yeah. and
3: you read the in, you read interviews about it and she's just like she, this is also by the way this is the this is the corner of the Sheridan verse that I am more compelled by because I love Sicario the Sicario and, and Zoe Saldana in interviews is like this is to me this is Sicario this yeah. is a and it, and it kind of is and I think that the the broad bones of it of Zoe Saldana and Nicole Kidman doing these dead fucking doing Josh Brolin and
2: Benicio Del Toro yes. from
3: Sicario yeah um, that is a project I can get behind
2: I also think Elisa D. is is
3: really good. Yeah, she's really compelling. She
2: plays the the sort of the lioness in
3: question. Look, it's it's a tough one because like I do think they're... Should are I ele- say
2: what like this show is about? Um <laughs> I guess I m- messed messed that up.
3: I did suggest that it was a masturbatory recruiting commercial. So I feel like people it's get not
2: It's about that. a CIA program mm-hmm. that recruits women from various armed services mm-hmm. to go undercover and essentially uh become associated with the extended social or family networks of known terrorists and that if they can get close enough to the target terrorists for them to orchestrate their elimination or capture or whatever. Um, And Zoe Saldana plays uh, Joe who runs the program. Uh, Nicole Kidman plays a woman named Caitlin who is her boss Mm -hmm. and seems to have some, some deep state action going. And uh, so far we've seen Michael Kelly who seems to be important in the National security apparatus. Mm-hmm. And the, the lioness in question is this woman played by Eliza Di
3: Now, again, like this is in the spirit of a of a well-made pilot. And shout out to Taylor Sheridan for this, if nothing else. I mean, the pilot is like 46 minutes. Like it it's is so fucking it's tight. right down the line. And it, that that does require some scenes of her being beaten and then running from her abuser and crashing into a Marine's office. And the Marine's yes. like, you now have a problem with the United States government. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is smiling so big right now. I guess what I'll say is this is extremely well-made material that is probably not for me, but I think one of the things about it that is interesting is we talk about this in many different ways all the time, but like the different types of storytelling that you can do in movies that you can do in TV. And one of the things that tends to happen in TV is things get softer and flatter over time because you spend so much time with these people and you begin to relate to them or empathize with them.
2: Want to join the Marines. Or
3: want to be friends with them in different ways and sometimes that can be played to great effect like we've talked about recently with succession like these are all terrible people but because of proximity we kind of feel for them and are weirdly rooting for them i can take this sort of worldview and rhetoric when it's deployed tactically like a 90 minute like sicario sure there's like or or zero dark 30 i think is an exceptional movie I'm not here to argue whether it's problematic or not in our role in the global whatever on terror. But I'm like, that's an incredibly well-made movie that for the duration of it, I was ready to run into a Marine recruiting office as well. Mm-hmm. And I would then be told, sir, GameStop is next door. <laughs> i like, thanks, guys.
2: No, you're looking for Walden books. <laughs>
3: God, I, had a, I was a member of their fantasy book club. And I had a little card. But the nature of a series, I think it wants us to go home with these people to a degree that, uh, that a movie wouldn't, you know? And so we're getting the home life and the Dr. Dave Annabelle and the, and, and that, but when the worldview is as consistently day of the soldado, but now it becomes also spaghetti night with the soldados. It's a tougher hang. Do you know what I mean? Like, but, but you know, I'm right. Right. Like, Keeping up with the Soldados, like this, yeah. just it's a different vibe. Like, for to be fair, so you
2: didn't get to the part. Day of where... the Soldado
3: is we know Sol- Sicario ends with Spaghetti Night at the Soldados, yeah. if I remember correctly.
2: Yeah,
3: and then that that night ends. <laughs> we didn't get like the build up. We so didn't you get... really
2: did turn it off after Dave Annabelle has to tell like a family that like I that
3: turned it's... off when he walked into the room. Okay, I right. did. I All did.
2: Right. So there is an extended redaction scene where they they basically capture Cruz and try to break her because they have to find out how long, like the yeah. actual American military does this. That's cool. And they have to keep her and torture her to see how how much she can take before she breaks. Because mm-hmm. so saw Saldaña needs to know that
3: going forward. Is it a lot? Can it's she a, take lot? a lot.
2: She takes a lot. She doesn't actually break. That's the whole thing,
3: Chris. Um If you've watched the the first 10 minutes of the show, you'll know that the the dramatic inciting incident that leads to everything that follows is about the discovery of a heretofore unknown tattoo. Yes. On the body of Of a a previous previous, lioness. Previous asset, yeah. Um, Would you disclose your body art to the United States? I don't know that my body
2: art would really tell anyone anything that they don't get from... You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a crucifix on my arm or a, a flag or anything. It's just like, this guy likes... Sound waves in cities, you know? I feel like that tells me- That's non-denominational, me a l- isn't it? I feel like that tells me a lot about you, you know? Anything else you wanted to talk about from this week in culture? Uh, before we get out of here? Thank you for watching, Lioness. I appreciate that. I mean, you know where I go with the stuff. Like, this, this is not- I didn't think you were going to come in and be like, this is our new Sunday night jam.
3: But I surprised you with hijack. Yeah. I like hijack.
2: So on Thursday, we'll complete the hijacking.
3: I can't wait. I'm really, uh, I'm really excited about that.
2: And uh, you know, there's lots of stuff we could check in on. Gemstones is cranking right now.
3: Yeah, I got to catch up.
2: And um, full circle still. Yeah. So I and want,
3: what's up with Chef Jeff
2: Res Dogs coming soon. That's coming soon. Early August.
3: And uh, man, we're also at the theater for Barbie. Like during the the Menounos moment, mm-hmm. I saw the trailer for the new Britt Marling FX show. Oh yeah, with Emma Corrin. Yeah. And Clive Owen. Look cool. Looks sick. Yeah. I'm down. TV and movies are back. Uh, Thank you to
2: Kai McMullen for producing us. Thank you to Andy Greenwald for coming in and talking to me about Barbie and Oppenheimer. The real lion. Thank you to all you lovely, lovely, lovely people for listening to
3: us chat. But like, it's what a weird moment because this is like a triumphant moment for Hollywood and I feel like movie culture. I feel like
2: the big screen is beckoning us. I I don't know if you've noticed that, Mm. but we have talked a lot about the films for the last month. Movies. They've been
3: better and more interesting than a lot of the TV.
2: Well, we're allowed to go where our passions take us. That's the only operative
3: also, ethic of this podcast. There likely won't be any TV <laughs> next year. So this is a smart pivot.
2: Yeah, because they're going to like m- remove all the films for the rest of the year and then put them in 24.
3: What a great time.
2: Talk to you guys on Thursday.